0: Forbear with one another. Now, how many of you ever heard of a message on forbearance before? Anybody ever heard of a message on forbearance? Yeah, me too. I never heard one, so I said, hey, maybe I need to review this. I need to look at it. And so when I'm preaching to you, I'm always preaching to myself first. And if it doesn't affect me, I normally don't bring it to you. But today, I'm bringing it to you. Luke 9, a very odd passage to find forbearance, but you'll see as you forbear with me as we go through this passage together. Luke 9, beginning in verse 46. Love the disciples. They're just real people. And so we open the verse and it says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. How's that for an opening passage? But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child, put him by his side, said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, whoever receives Me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master. I find it also interesting after Jesus makes this profound statement, the very next statement is like John. Ooh, 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 John. Master, master. Okay. We saw someone (laughs) casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. Jesus said to him, don't stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So it's a little bit of a time break, but this is the next thing that Luke wants to mention to us. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people didn't receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. They went on to another village. Let's pray. Father, again, what a joy it is to be here. Lord, what it is, what a privilege it is to be able to share your word. But Lord, unless you build a house, we labor in vain. So Father, I pray that you would, you would anoint the words that I would speak, that you would cause them to be true to the text. And Lord, that we pray that you would also open our ears to receive, our hearts to receive and be transformed by your word. So that Lord, when we leave this place, we will leave freshly affected and impacted by your word and go forth from this place to bring you much glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Some of you weren't born when this happened, so you got to bear with me. Everybody knows the movie Snow White, right? The Walt Disney movie Snow White. If you don't, it's a must-see. Okay, it released in the 30s or something like that. Then they recolorized it, and then they re-released it. Okay, so I'm going to this movie. I'm taking my, my, my two girls with me to the movie. Wanted them to see Snow White. Wanted them to get the whole full flavor of what was taking place. So we're sitting down there, and the movie starts off. And all of a sudden, you remember the scene? Maybe you don't. Snow White goes to the wishing well. And she has a little tattered clothes on, and she's just looking so wonderful and angelic, and she's looking in the wishing well, and she goes, "I'm wishing." (laughs) Forgive me, (laughs) forgive me, (laughs) Devin. For the one I love to find me today, and the well would sing back at her. You know, I'm wishing, I'm wishing for the. You know, so you got this going on, right? And then all of a sudden, she's singing a song, singing a little heart out. And at the very you know, you know, she doesn't know it, but Prince Charming is riding on his horse. He climbs over the wall. And at the very end, he, he closes with her. Today. You know, he finishes the song with her. There's a, the person she was talking about right there. She runs from him. You know, and he's singing his little heart out. I just start tearing up right there. I was just thinking. Well, I'm thinking, you know, and I, you know, what I could carry. You know, okay, kids, this is who I am, right? Um, but what, what really got me about this was that there was a purity. There was a, a wonderful aspect of it because here was a young woman sharing her heart, wanting to find her true love, and sure enough, her true love comes. He's instantly smitten with her, singing words to her. Okay, all right, I won't take you through the whole Snow White story, but let's go to the very end. At the very end, Snow White bit the apple from the evil witch or whatever she was, the uh, stepmother. Anyway, she's laying in a glass coffin. The prince finally finds where she is because she's sleeping. She's not dead. And, of course, he gives her love's true kiss. And she wakes up. You know? And I don't know if remember, the little dwarves were all around, you know, and they were kind of, and then they started, all little animals are jumping up and down. They're just they're just excited. Wow, Snow White just rode, you know, woke up. And it's like, wow. And then the prince takes her, puts her on the horse, and he's guiding her off. And as you see in the sunset, there's this just gigantic castle gleaming and glowing. And then the final credit says, and they lived happily. Ever after. I don't know about you, but I want to live in Storybook Land. You know what I'm saying? Because that's like, hey, the world should be like this. This should be how the world is. This should be, you know, true love wins above all. Evil is taken care of, and they all live happily ever after. And then I, I'm reminded, uh, we don't live in fairy tale land. We live in real Worldville. We live in a place. Where Princess Diana and Prince Charles don't live together happily ever after. I don't, remember, I don't know if you remember when Princess Diana was first married, and they, I mean it was literally storybook land, right? It was just, and, and then when you see the tragedy that happened, it's like it's a wake-up call. Why? Why can't we live in story? Why are we living in real-worldville? Why? Because we live in a fallen world, don't we? We are fallen people, living among fallen people in a fallen world. Because of sin, sin affects every aspect of life on this planet, and it affects every relationship that we have, right? I mean, it doesn't take you much to know that. People will sin against us, we will sin against people. And the more frequently we interact with people, the more frequently they will sin against us, the more frequently we'll sin against them. And so in this real world of sinful people relating with sinful people, what is one of the most vital components of continuing a relationship that seeks to be healthy, that seeks to be fruitful, that seeks to glorify God? And if this component is missing or lacking, relationships will erode They will dishonor God, and they can very well collapse. And this passage, Luke 9, that we're going to go, it has three vignettes. And each vignette addresses this vital component. What's the vital component? Forbearance. It's forbearance. If we're going to have any relationship, be successful while we live in this sinful age, on this sinful planet, as sinful people relating with other sinful people, we must be forbearing toward one another. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, you know, the, the, the famous love passage. What's the first thing it says? Love is, it says, patient. Now, that Greek word is makrothymeo. It means love is, it's forbearing, it's enduring, it's long-suffering. So the very first characteristic, you see this quality of being patiently forbearing and long-suffering with whoever you're choosing to love. So what exactly is forbearance? If you go to the dictionary, you'll find forbearance is the consistent exercise of patience, of self-control, of restraint and tolerance in relating to others. Patience, self-control, restraint, and tolerance. What's the legal definition of forbearance? It's the action of refraining from exercising a legal right, especially enforcing the payment of a debt. It's actually refraining from the exercise in a legal right. And biblically, forbearance we see is like a fruit cluster. It's like a cluster of fruit of the Spirit. Like, it contains love. It contains peace. It contains patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. They all come together because to be forbearing, you have to exercise patience. You have to exercise self-control. You have to exercise restraint. And you have to exercise tolerance in relating with other people. You know, when you think about it, we all have what I would call long-standing, deep-rooted sin areas in our lives. I think all of us can say that. There's probably some, some areas in your life you wished had gone away, but they don't. And every time you think you got a hold on it, something happens, and you realize you don't. Take, and I love, God gives us pop quizzes to let us know these things. For example, someone cuts you off while you 're driving your car, what is your response? your initial response? Bless you, my brother, Go right ahead. I was entitled to that you illegally cut me off, but go with god 's blessing. Yeah, right I'm wishing <laughs> you know it ain't happening. so the point i 'm getting at is is that that's a pop quiz because God 's showing, hey, you know when you're you know trying to restrain yourself and not go after the, you know, whatever it is, whatever your initial response is, it's showing God's saying, there's some unforbearance going on here. Yes, you were legally entitled to him not cutting you off. But yes, one of the things you must be is forbearance. So just, just a thought about that, you know. I um, You know, uh, and I think what happens is, is that we all have these not yet areas in our life. We all have these areas, and they're not yet. You know what? God has done an amazing work in our lives, right, because there's some already areas, things that God's already worked in, done some amazing things. If you look back over years, you'll see some wonderful spiritual growth. But there are some things that aren't growing quite as fast. And so people need to be forbearing with us as we're moving forth, and we need to be forbearing with others because they have the not yet area. And have you noticed we're much more attuned to other people's not yet areas in their lives than we are to our own? You know, that's what we have one another. That we can kind of tune up one another and say, you know, I kind of think. Like, for example, perhaps your spouse won't meet your physical or spiritual or emotional needs that the Bible commands them to meet. You see, the Bible commands them to do these things. Or perhaps your child won't give you the gratitude or respect or obedience that the Bible commands them to give. Or perhaps it's like... Um, your parents or your friends or your siblings or other Christians don't treat you or your boss, they don't treat you the way the Bible commands them to. You know, it's like you could say in one sense, you know what, you're supposed to treat me in a certain way and you're not. How's God saying we're supposed to respond to those people? We're supposed to respond to them by seeking to be forbearing, seeking to be patient, Seeking to exercise self-control and restraint and tolerance. Um, It's a very, it may not be the only aspect of our response, but it's a very important aspect of our response. Because if we respond in an unforbearing way toward another person who has sinned against us, all they will see is our unforbearingness. They will never see what we're trying to say unless God does this miraculous work. So, And the other thing about forbearance, I don't want to fool you about this. Forbearance comes with a price. That price is long-suffering. In fact, some translations translate forbearance as long-suffering. I know in this church you don't have it, but you know, there are some churches that have brother and sister sandpaper. They just seem to rub you the wrong way. And you don't know why. I remember one time there were, um, I was brand new at this, but I just put some wallpaper up. And I was really proud of this wallpaper job. You know, this is, this is great. And there was one little area where the seams didn't line up. But that was okay with me, right? And um, so this sister comes along who's, who's known more for her frankness than for anything else. She walks in and she goes, oh, I see you missed the seam there. That little thing, it was like, what, couldn't you have responded in a way that overlooked that and said, hey, I really like this, you know, or I really like everything, but the, same. the point is, is that for myself, I realized it was like, then I thought, wait a minute, this is why get a lot of emotional energy, but the point I'm getting at is, those little things happen every, a lot, you don't, you maybe don't even consciously realize it, but people can get on your nerves, right? You're not unforgiving toward them, but you can be unforbearing toward them and not even realize it. So we have to understand that, that there is a price. It's, it's called being long suffering. Uh, and so in any relationship to prosper, we have to be forbearing toward one another. Now, when you think about it, look at the most, what's, who's the most important relationship that you have for eternity? Our relationship with Jesus Christ. What if Jesus stopped being forbearing with us? It would be, oh Lord, oh Lord. You know, we, we cry out about, Lord, make them treat me like they're supposed to. Make them treat me like I deserve. We would never, if you have any kind of one month of maturity in Christ, you would never say, Lord, treat me like I deserve. Because the Lord treats us with forbearance. He treats us with grace. He treats us with mercy. He treats us with, with great restraint, great patience. And so we understand that we sin against him. We fall short every day, every day. But his forbearance is always there. And so my main point, I like to give a main point in case you miss everything else. Real simple. Christ forbears with us. The Spirit empowers us. To forbear with others or grow in forbearance with others. So let us seek to forbear with others, right? I mean, it's like this is not rocket science, but I have to say, these are the lessons that I'm continually taught over and over and over again. And I have three sub points I like to make, let you know them up front. Forbear with one another, forbear with those who aren't like you, and forbear with those who are unforbearing toward you. Unforbearing toward you. Let's, let's look at the first one, Luke nine forty six to 48. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reason of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Put yourself in this passage. You're one of the disciples. Okay? Now you have to remember, just before this or just shortly before this, Jesus had recently taken Peter, James, and John up the mountaintop with him where they witnessed the transfiguration. Wow! Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being one of the three? You know, as he's taking you up to the mountain. You're seeing the transfigure, Moses, Elijah, the whole bit. And, you know, now, but you're not in that three. You're in the other nine. You're one of the other nine people. I like what he said, the reasoning of their hearts. He looked at the reason. Can you imagine? Here's the reason of my heart in that situation. Hey, wait a minute. Why'd he take them and not me? What makes them so special? Man, look at Peter. That guy's always, you know, he's always tripping over his own words, man. He, how could they take him? In fact, even when the guy was up on the mountain of transfiguration, right? He's saying dumb stuff. You know, I, I don't understand it. You know, what makes him so special? Hey, I'm better than that guy. You know, you, we never know that we rank other people until they rankle us, and then we realize it's some kind of pecking order we've established. Anyway, he said, wait, I deserve to be one of the chosen three. And then I'll kind of list my rationale. And so you start reasoning that way. Guess what? An argument is going to arise as to which one of you was greatest. And in this sense, greatest meant which one of you should deserve the most preferential treatment? Which one of you should be the most favored? Which one of you should be considered by Jesus the most valuable? And so they're beginning to make their cases and arguing against one another. And, and all of a sudden, and it's like, it's, it's interesting so it says Jesus, knowing the reason of their hearts. See, Jesus, he could get to the root of the issue. What's at the root of this? Jealousy, envy, self-righteous indignation. All this stuff is coming up. They were building a case to justify to themselves and anybody else who'd listen as to how they were as great as or even greater than those other three disciples. Now, here's what I find is interesting. First the way Jesus responds to them. You know, Jesus, he demonstrates forbearance, doesn't he? He doesn't immediately and harshly rebuke them. You know, he doesn't jump on their case. He says, you guys, I'm done. No, he doesn't. He he forbears. He tries to help them shift their perception as to what great means. He's basically saying, guys, you're looking at great the wrong way. Look at great the way God defines great. And then he says, so he takes a child, puts him by his side, says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. He who is least among you all is the one who is great. He brings this child because, see, in the first century, in Jesus' day, a child was considered an insignificant, weak member of society. A child was the personification, and exemplification of one who was least. In the pecking order of society, they were the least. They may have been very well loved, but they were considered the least. And so Jesus was saying that least has nothing to do, when he says he's the least, it has nothing to do with your rank, has nothing to do with your talent, has nothing to do with your importance. It refers to the one who is most willing to humble himself in order to serve others, especially the least. Do you follow that? He says, you want to know what great in God's eyes are? It's serving those who you might consider to be the least. And so he's trying to bring a perspective. He's trying to shift their perspective to understand what greatness in the kingdom means. And when you think about how Jesus humbled himself, right, (laughs) by leaving the throne of God, you know, and coming down, taking on human as a servant, born in a manger. When you think of those things, you begin to understand, you begin to get the bigger picture about he who is least among you is the one who is great. He who is least among you. And so we begin to see this. In fact, when I was a younger Christian, actually I was saved at age 29, I'm now 70, but I saved at age 29, been part of the same church ever since I was saved, and I remember as a young Christian, God kind of, he just had me, you know, you, you see in the life of the church, you know, you see the good, the bad, the ugly, you see everything about the life of the church. And I remember one time they were like, um, the elders, they informed the congregation, they were looking for another elder. Well, you know how when you're in a church, a small church, you come up with your top, your top list. So everybody kind of had a top four list. These were godly men. Men, you know, you viewed as godly. There were men who, you know, but while any one of those guys really served the church well, men of character, men of substance, you know, da-da-da-da-da, 1 Timothy 3, the whole bit. You know, so, so, um, so you're doing that. So then the elders, they pull apart. They pray, they decide to receive input from others. And all of a sudden, they come up and they pick a name of a man who wasn't in that top four list. He wasn't in anybody's top four list. And at first the church was going, huh? Now, over time, we began to see the wisdom of the elders in choosing that man. And we also began to see the wisdom of the elders in not choosing the other four men. I'll tell you why. Because what had happened was, These men who weren't chosen began to reason within themselves, why wasn't it one of us? Why is it this guy who didn't even make the top four in our view? They became offended, each and every one of them. Their hearts turned from the elders. They became, you know, and eventually each one left the church. And to this day, as far as I know, none of those men ever became An elder. Well, the first thing it made me realize was that I didn't, I wouldn't have known this about these men unless they'd been put in this position. Right? God will always put you in a position to reveal what's down in your heart at the deeper levels. And once you think you have that dealt with, he'll take it even deeper still. But what had happened was these men showed that they really weren't ready yet. The good men. You know, I'm not trying to criticize a lot of things about them, but they turned in a wrong direction. Why? Because they were being unforbearing toward the elders and the decision they had made. And it wasn't a question of whether the elders right or wrong or indifferent. God was looking at their hearts saying, how will you respond to this? How will you respond when this man is chosen and you aren't? And so that was a life lesson. That a, you ever have a life lesson at a young age, you know? And it's like, wow, I, I, gotta, I don't, I don't want to help me, Lord, to, to not go down that path. And so we begin to see. So in a, in a church, right, one of the things that we have to, we love one another, fellowship with one another. But you know what? We have to forbear with one another, don't we? We have to forbear. On this side of eternity, we have to forbear with one another. That is part of living a life that will glorify God and glorify the church. So, now forbear with those not like you. This is Luke 9, 49 to 50. John, John, you know, as soon as Jesus says this, John changes the subject. He says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, Mark 9, 38 has the same passage in it, but he, he, he adds to it a little bit. It says, Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. So again, we see Jesus, he's being very forbearing with them. He's explaining to them don't stop them. Here's why you shouldn't stop them. And so he takes time to explain to the disciples. He's not rebuking them. He's not correct. Well, he is correcting them, but he's not, he's not being harsh with them or anything. He's being very forbearing with them. You see, see, the the key question to them and for us is the key question isn't, are they for or against my way of practicing my faith? You know, there's my way of practicing my faith. And, um, and then there's people practice their faith in different ways. Or is the true question is, are they true believers in Christ? Are they true believers in his gospel? True believers in his word? Even though some of their beliefs differ from mine. You know, when you think about that, Augustine of Hippo said this very well. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. and all things, charity. In essentials, unity. and non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And then, um, if I wanted to say it this way, in biblical precepts or biblical commands, clear biblical commands, it needs to be unity. But in personal convictions, there needs to be liberty. And then in all things, it needs to be charity. You know, hey, do you ever find out that Christianity includes both Reformed and Arminian believers. Right? It includes cessationist and continuationist believers. It includes Pado-Baptist and Credo-Baptist believers. It includes egalitarian and complementarian believers. Right? I can remember going to a place, I won't go into it very much in depth, but I can remember someone saying, it was at a pastor's fellowship and I'm going around, hey, I'm, and he said, you know, I heard of you and I heard of what your church believes and I can't fellowship with you because you are a, fill in the blank, and I am a, and I'm, I'm you, ever, you ever feel a fool if someone doesn't shake your hand even? You're just standing there and you're kind of, you know, and, um, and it really, it struck me as that Lord help me now, obviously, um, you know, well, I won't go into that. But anyway, obviously it's, or, or I can't fellowship with you because I heard this about you or your church. Now, obviously, there has to be unity in essentials. But there's a lot of things where the body of Christ differs. And I'm convinced of one thing. We're, we, we're going to find out we were wrong about one of our doctrines when we get to meet Jesus. He go, oh, you believe that? Oh, no, 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 you, you missed the whole point. You know, I just think there's something that's going to be humbling where we have to, you know, we have to be careful. And, okay, this is what we believe. And I have to say, I love being around reform, Continuationist, cradle Baptist, complementarian believers. i great, love that. But I'm not going to go, oh, whoa, wait a minute. You know? So anyway, the point I want to get at is, these people may not be like us, but we need to forbear with those who aren't like us, correct? And they need to be forbearing with us. I think what gives, like, the, you know, all the Christian denominations out there, can you imagine if all of Christian denominations would be more forbearing with one another? You know, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Okay. And then here's the one that forbear with those who are unforbearing toward you. I don't know about you, man, but that is tough for me. Forbear with those who are unforbearing toward you. Luke 51, nine fifty-one to 56. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he, sent his face to go to Jeru- he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messages ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, man, John must have been a real firebrand in this day, huh? When James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Jesus turned and he rebuked them, you know. And then he went on to another village. Now, the first thing you want to know is that forbearance doesn't mean necessarily refraining from rebuke a loving rebuke, when a loving rebuke is necessary. So forbearing and rebuking can kind of go on the same sentence. It's just how it's done, the grace in which it's given, speaking the truth in love. So, now, as anybody who knows about the Samaritans, right? The Samaritans did not like the Jews. The Jews did not like the Samaritans. They were not very forbearing with one another. Okay? Okay? And so that's why John was saying, hey, James and John, hey, you want us to to call down fire from heaven on them? You know? And then Jesus simply had to rebuke them. And let's face it, today, we are going to, we are relating with, not going to have to, we are relating with very unforbearing believers and very unforbearing unbelievers, a guy named Don Hoosier said this. He says, "Long suffering is no longer an everyday word, but it's a virtue needed more than ever when impatience, intolerance, oversensitivity, and impulsive anger are so prevalent." Um, when I was growing up, I, I you know I went through the Vietnam protests, you know the all the you know I, I went through a lot of stuff, and I saw a lot of unforbearance with people toward one another, and I'm seeing another fresh round of it taking place today. Our, our society is very polarized between like, progressives, conservatives. There's just a very a polarization. There's not a lot of forbearance in either camp toward the other one. It's uh, something else. In fact, uh, a group of students at Lebanon Valley College in Pennsylvania, they are demanding that the school rename Lynch Memorial Hall. Now, Lynch Memorial Hall was named after its former principal and leader, a fellow named Clyde A. Lynch. That's how they named it. They demanded that they change the name because of the racial overtones of the word Lynch. I would say that's a little bit sensitive. Now, I'm, I, you know, I, believe me, I'm, I'm not in their world. I want to be more understanding of their world. But I had to say my initial thought was, Really? Because the word, you know, is that being a little oversensitive? Needless to say, that's something they need to work out. But I'll tell you one thing. If you want to find out how unforbearing the world would be toward you, share what the Bible says about abortion, about sex outside of heterosexual marriage, about heaven who will go there, about hell who will go there, about the only way people can be saved. You share that with people who, you know, there will be a very unforbearing response toward you unless God opens their eyes, opens their ears, and opens their hearts to receive. Now, I'm not suggesting that we shrink back. I do suggest we share compassionately and lo- that we be very forbearing with them, even if they're being unforbearing toward us. But you know what the response for most people is? You Christians are intolerant. You're intolerant people. And because you're in so, and we can't tolerate you because you're so intolerant. Um, and so when you look at that, you kind of go, well, I like what Rick Warren said about this. And I think it's very important. He says the problem today is that tolerant has changed its meaning. It used to mean I may disagree with you completely, but I will treat you with respect. I will treat you with respect. Today, tolerant means you must approve of everything I do. You see, the difference between tolerance and approval, Jesus accepted everyone no matter who they were, but he doesn't approve of everything I do or you do or anybody else does for that. He says you can be accepting without approving. In fact, I think it's even gone, you must approve what I approve. And you may not disapprove what I approve. And we begin to see that, and it's like, woo. okay. We have to realize what we're going into, that that we are headed into some pretty turbulent season here again, and then we begin to see that that the definition of tolerance, at least in the world's view, has changed. See, we can accept, we must accept others, but not necessarily approve of the actions that they take. Now, I want to talk about, as we go on this, Our temptation is, yes, we should become indignant about certain things. But we can have righteous indignation and we can have self-righteous indignation. I have to say one of my default modes tends to be self-righteous indignation. And I have to cry out to the Holy Spirit to grab me, change my heart, so that I'm not going around with self-righteous. Indignation, it's a strong displeasure at something considered unjust offensive, insulting or base. In other words, and we sh- you know, we should become indignant when we see the effect of sin on our society, when we see the effect of like of abortion, of human trafficking, of drug dealing, of evil governments, of terrorism, of, of false religions and their philosophies. You know, th- there's a lot of harm that's being done. A lot of a lot of things are being done and there is a place where we can say, God God, please stop this evil. Stop this evil from happening. The problem is, self-righteous indignation says, yes, stop the evil and punish the evildoers. Bring your wrath down upon the evildoers. Call down fire from heaven and consume them. Now, do the evildoers deserve fire being called down to heaven and consuming them? Yeah. So do we. You see? So do we. We deserve the same thing. We deserve for wrath to come down upon us. But Jesus, rather than responding to us in his justified wrath, has chosen to show us his amazing grace and his staggering mercy. Self righteous indignation calls out for judgment on the perpetrators. Righteous indignation calls out for mercy toward the perpetrators. Let me give you an example that hit home with me. You know who Kim Jong un is? I guess it's the King Kim Jong un. He's the, you know, the quote, evil dictator of North Korea, you know, rattling his sabers, going to nuke everybody and their brother and all that. Okay? What's your first thought if you're going to cry out to God about what he should do with this, this evil dictator? I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. My, my first thought would be, Lord, just destroy this guy. Blast him into the Actually send down a lightning bolt from heaven that lets people know that it was you that did it. Call down fire from heaven on this guy. Wait a minute, who's that sound like? Oh, James and John said this, and my name's, you know. And all of a sudden, now, would that solve the problem? You kill him, what's going to happen? A little Kim Jong, whatever, Junior's going to rise up in his place, right? You kill one evil guy, another, you know, like whack-a-mole. Boom, whoop, boom, whoop. You know, in other words, you're not going to solve the problem. What if, though, you said, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon this man? Do not treat him as his sins deserve. Lord, open his blind eyes, his deaf ears, and his dead heart to your glorious gospel. Save this man. Save the ISIS leaders. Save uh, those who are in governing authority in Iran. Lord, Lord, the true solution to vanquishing evil is for the gospel to reign. And so, the next time I see Kim Jong un on TV, that's going to prompt me to pray for that man's salvation. Can you imagine what would take place if the next thing you hear from his mouth is, I have received Jesus Christ as my Lord and personal Savior? Wow. So, I'm going to close this way. First of all, how can we grow? How can we grow in being forbearing? toward one another, toward those who aren't like us, toward those who are unforbearing toward us. Well, I think the first thing is we've got to remember. First thing we have to remember, remember the Lord's forbearance toward us. We can never be justified in being unforbearing toward anyone because our Lord Jesus Christ was forbearing toward us. He did not treat us as our sins deserve or in accordance with our iniquities. He didn't do it. You see, we don't forbear with people because they deserve it. People don't deserve to be forborn with, that's a word. But we don't deserve it either. We don't deserve that people be forbearing with us. We do it because because Christ forbeared with us. He showed us what it meant, how to relate to a world. And, And also, he commands us to do it. It's not an optional extra. It's not something we can choose or justify or saying, well, Lord, this excuses me because the way this particular person treated me. No, we can't do that. And then one other thing I realized, you know, is that these unforbearing people and the way they treat you with unforbearance, one thing we have to remember is that God perfectly uses the imperfections in unforbearing people to perfect us. You follow that? He uses the imperfection of other sinners to perfect us sinners. He actually uses that. He works all things together for good. And so we begin to see is that first we realize we're not very forbearing. Then we begin to remember and appreciate, oh God, thank you for being forbearing with me. Oh Lord, Lord, Help me to honor your command to be forbearing. And then Jesus says, I'm not going to send you out here alone. It's not going to be in your strength, but I'm also you need to remember that I have given you the indwelling Holy Spirit who will empower you to be, to grow in forbearance. Aren't you glad that we don't have to be forbearing in our own strength? I mean, that would be just... No, we give it. So, So then we... We see, um, is that, all right, Lord, Lord, help us. And and first of all, we we want to, who are we, ask the Holy Spirit, who are we being unforbearing toward and why? Who are you being unforbearing toward and why? It's kind of interesting. One of the reasons I believe, a very major reason we're unforbear we can be unforbearing toward someone, is that we begin to define them or view them through the lens of the not Yet they're not yet. You know what I mean? In other words, God may have done amazing things in this person's life. That's what we should be viewing them through, the already. What has God done? I love when CJ gave that message about evidences of grace years ago. Look for the evidences of grace in that person's life. Let me give you a very quick example. There was a brother I knew. He and his wife were having a horrible marriage. He actually was an elder, had to step out of being an elder because of the relationship they were having that was tearing him apart. And he was doing all the good husband things. He'd send her flowers. He'd send her notes. He'd send her cards. And in that, he would step back and self-righteous. she would say, well, I'm doing my part. You know, but she isn't sending, you know, she's not. The thing was, what he came to realize was, she was saying, you're just doing the good husband thing. You're not doing this because you truly love me. In fact, there's a part of you that's doing it just to show me what a good husband you are, and I'm not buying a, I'm not buying a bit of it. Okay, so he's at the end of his rope, you know. So he and his wife I, I kid you not they actually for some reason they go to a a um, a, a secular Jewish counselor for counsel. That would have been one of the to asked me. I'd have gone. I don't know. God works all things together, right? He goes to the counselor, and what does the counselor tell him? I mean, they you know, they point out their hearts, how oh, this person's sending again. Can't you fix them? And you know all this stuff. And the counselor goes, "Okay, I heard you. I tell you what, I want you to. I give you some homework. I want you to write out ten things you admire about your spouse, and I want you to write out ten things you admire about your spouse. Okay, this is evidence of grace, but the woman's not saying it. You know, ten things you admire, right?" So he goes back home. He starts writing out these 10 things. She starts writing out these 10 things. And all of a sudden, that stranglehold broke. It just broke. Because they began to realize the gift that God had given them and the work he had done in each person's heart. And I was, I was, I mean, I lived, I lived in there. I was watching them. I was crying. They changed. And they became one of the best marriages I've ever had the privilege to witness up close and personal. So we have to understand, let us begin to look at those people and just begin to focus on the evidence of grace that God has worked in their lives and not try to view them through the not yet. You know, also let's not think that just because we kissed a frog, he automatically becomes a prince. You know, we frogs have to grow in our princeliness and some of us may get a little farther than others but there's still going to be some frogginess in every single one of us okay anyway i digress and then so we and then when we see that when God let's confess it as sin let's say lord help, we confess this lack of forbearance toward that person as sin and lord we repent lord we cry out for your holy spirit to change our heart to help us grow in being more forbearing especially toward that person and then, Lord, help us to be willing to pay the price, because there is a price. It's called long-suffering. I mean, just putting up with those flaws, with those foibles, putting up with that in that person as the, the Spirit continues to work on them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, I, I just thank you again for these precious people, Lord, who who want to hear your word, want to apply it to their lives, and cry out that you would transform them, that they would grow in Christ-likeness. And so, Father, I pray that you would cause this word to affect hearts, to change hearts, that we would reflect your heart increasingly to one another, to those who are not like us, and to those even who are unforbearing toward us. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.